Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. We have a big show for you today. A really big show, so let's get right at it. Later, I'll tell you about Elvis, the film about the king of rock and roll from Moulin Rouge director Baz Luhrmann. It's been a big hit in theaters, and I caught up with Baz Luhrmann and his stars, Austin Butler, who hands in an absolutely terrific performance as Elvis, and Olivia de Young, who plays Elvis's wife Priscilla, we talked about what the story of Elvis's life can tell us about America, Priscilla's role in the singer's life, and much, much more. We'll also meet actor Dylan Smith. You know him from his performance in films like 300, Total Recall, Murder on the Orient Express, and many others. He'll next be seen in Prime Video's largest title to date, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. The series serves as a prequel to the events we all know from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy and focuses on the forging of the Rings of Power and the One Ring in the Second Age. If that makes sense to you, you'll want to check out the new series on Prime Video when it begins its run on September 2nd. First, though, let's meet director and actor Rauri Bahajar. Her film Carmen, now in theaters and coming to VOD on September 30th, is a new coming-of-age story set on the island of Malta that sees the title character, played by Californication star Natasha McAlone, rediscover her own life and desires after her brother, the village priest, passes away. It's an empathetic and optimistic movie about a second chance at living life to the fullest. Valerie Bahajar joined me via Zoom. Where will I go? You are good, dear Carmen. And you will live eternally in bliss. When will that happen? And will what happen? Bliss. Find it. If I stay one more night with my husband, I will die. Make him the same food until he doesn't come back. Thank you. <laughs> no one can blame you for falling in love. It is rare and beautiful. This story is loosely based on your Aunt Rita. What was her story? The truth is, Richard, it's the tradition. So um, I'll tell you, Rita is now in her 90s. I never really understood what her story was until back in 2013, I went to Malta to visit family and my cousin explained her story. There was a tradition in Malta where when a man became a priest, which many families had a son who became a priest, mm -hmm. um, his sister would go with him and be his maid. And that would be her life. She wouldn't get an education, a salary, or a family of her own. And my Aunt Rita did that at the age of 13. She took care of my great uncle, who was a monsignor, and then my uncle, uh, who's a priest, and did that till they died. And then family took her in, and that's that was her life. So I took that tradition and wrote Carmen. And you met her when you went back to Malta. Oh gosh. Yeah. I, yeah. I see her whenever I go to Malta, I see her. Yeah. And, yeah. and what sort of conversations do you have with her? What does she reflect back on that life in a way that uh, gave you material for the story? Not at all. No, no, <laughs> no she just, uh, not just, I mean, she, she wept. I, my she doesn't speak a word of English and my mm. multi is bad. And my cousin, also named Rita, <laughs> um, told her that I made this film um, 
based on her story and uh, she just wept and said uh, that her life was terrible. So there is not, there's nothing, it's only the tradition that is similar to my aunt. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's tradition. And that tradition was not only in Malta, apparently Ireland has it and other places like that. As you're creating the story of Carmen, then tell me a little bit about uh, crafting this story. It's kind of a coming of age story. Uh, of a woman who's 50 years old, who rediscovers the joy in her life. Uh, So tell me a little bit about piecing all these elements together. I have five sisters. (laughs) You know, I have a lot of female friends and I kind of get inspired by all of these stories, all of my aunt's uh, stories. And so I guess, you know, and, and, and then I've got a great imagination. So it's like a combination of, all of that, and what if, and what if uh, the 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 beauty of of figuring things out and later in life is like you don't you don't care if anyone's watching <laughs> so much, right? And and that's I guess the crux of what I've done with um, Carmen this story. When you are looking for inspiration for stories, I think back to the passion of Rita Camilleri, uh, your first film, which was. Uh, based on a, a Maltese young woman uh, sort of kicking back against Catholic beliefs. Um, do you often draw on uh, real life and, and elements of, of things that have happened in your life for your fiction stories? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, I guess, I, I, yeah, probably, <laughs> you know, it's a um, um, bit of this and stories I've heard and um you know because I'm an actor as well mm-hmm. so as I'm writing I'm acting through stuff right I'm I'm playing every character um as I'm at, sitting at my kitchen table typing away you're listening to Valerie Bahajar on the Richard Krauss show her film Carmen is in theaters now and will come to VOD on September 30th uh, and I try to be as authentic as possible so probably Probably, yeah. Now, The Passion of Rita Camilleri was inspired, definitely inspired by a true story in the sense that um, uh, when I was in grade three, my best friend died in a house fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so little Rita is actually me um, and my questions when my friend died, like I was completely lost. And yes, I grew up in a very strict Catholic family. So I um, was pulling out and throwing out, pulling out and throwing out questions to to that death and what happens and what is this heaven that people are talking about and what's Ju- Jesus doing about it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and <laughs> where's this guy that we keep praying to? And um, yeah, it's all questions. It's questions, not so much answers. And yeah, um, people always kid me because um, Jesus is in a lot of my films and... <laughs> Because it's it's more about, and I don't hope I I don't want to offend anyone. You know, it, it's just questions. It really is. I'm really curious about um, the spiritual world. Yeah, and and I and I like to put a hint of humor in it as mm-hmm. well. Is it different when you're writing a character because you are a performer as well? Do you think that your experience as an actor gives you a, a different kind of insight? than if you were not also an actor. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. It definitely does. Like I said, like I'm basically acting as I'm typing. Like, you know, um, 
each character and going back and forth, no matter age or uh, gender and so forth. Uh, the problem with that is because I, I miss out the beats while I'm writing. So it's, so I'm not writing those beats in mm. because I them. And, uh, um, you know, I have to remind people, oh, I have to, that's where the rewriting comes in because people might misunderstand what I'm saying and, and so forth. But, um, and especially for the leading ladies, I, I I'll mainly write for women uh, as women as a protagonist. Um, so I'm definitely um, enveloped into that character. And then, you know, it's easy to hand off. And of course, it was so easy to hand off to Natasha Nicholhone. And it became a great collaboration. That's what's so beautiful about it. You know, you write it. And you're acting at your kitchen table as you write it. And then some wonderful actor comes and she uh, collaborates and makes it her own. It's a beautiful thing. How did you find her? Oh, she was just walking around. Um, (laughs) But it's a very specific character. You must have had an idea while you were (laughs) writing of what you wanted and who you wanted. So uh, how do you cast a role like that? Well, this, that was, it was a bit different. Um, I have to tell you, initially, I, I just thought, you know, we'll go to Malta and find um, a Maltese female actor to play the role. And, and then producers came on board and said, we need someone with more uh, clout, mm-hmm. a name. Okay. And we reached out to, I believe they reached out to some Americans. We had, a, I had a list of people. Um uh, you know, it took forever for them to even read the script and then availability and that sort of thing. And I always kind of was pushing towards if we if we had to get a name, a British actor, because uh, I know the way they're trained. They do theater. Um, they're a little more flexible, I think. Again, I, I'm probably offending someone, but <laughs> um, but uh, anyways, the producers uh, found a casting agent in the UK. Jessie Frost is her name. And she suggested a few people. And I, I gave out names as well. I didn't know Natasha Nicholhone very well at all. But she kept pushing for Natasha. And I have to say, at first, I was like, no, she's too beautiful. She's too beautiful. How do I make someone so beautiful invisible? you know, in this, in this story, in this village, right? Uh, Natasha read the script. She really, really liked it. And we chatted a couple of times and I told her, I told her my only concern is that you're too beautiful for the role. And, and, and we talked about how we can alter things and how her physicality might be in the beginning. And then when she finds her voice, she will open up and uh, blossom and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, there you go that's how it came about and it was it was I'm so glad I'm so so glad she said yes because she brought such a gravitas and humor and I don't know just a beautiful arc to this uh person that was Valerie Bahajar on the Richard Krauss show her new film Carmen is in theaters now and will be on VOD starting on September 30th check it out let's meet Dylan Smith The son of filmmakers, Smith had an eye on a career in hockey until he was sidelined by an injury and discovered theater. 
He is now an accomplished stage and film actor who has performed on Broadway, appeared in films like 300, Total Recall, Murder on the Orient Express, and many others. He'll next be seen in Prime Video's largest title to date, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. The series serves as a prequel to the events that we all know from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy and focuses on the forging of the Rings of Power and the One Ring in the Second Age. It begins on Prime Video on September 2nd. More on that series just a little bit later on in the show. First, let's get to know Dylan Smith, who joined me via Zoom from Australia. I want to go back a little bit. We've got a bit of time here. So I want to go back a little ways here. Um, I know your family history. Your mother is an Academy Award winner uh, for her short film. Your father is an Academy Award nominated director. Uh, but you say that even though with that end, you had an uncle that was a, an animator, There's a, the, the family is in show business, but you say that if you had dinner with them, you would never know it, that they would, they did not sit around and talk about showbiz. What was a family dinner like around your dinner table? Well, my parents were in the National Film Board of Canada, and, and that's where they made the, the, the first pass at their career. And um, although they come from news and journalism. Um, so we had the, we had just, we had the National Film Board in our lives all the time, often at dinner. Um, I think it was a very artistic, it was very political home. Mm -hmm. um, a very artistic home. I, I was an ice hockey player. I was the black sheep of the family. Um, I keep saying ice hockey player because I've been in the Southern hemisphere. That's it's, right. I, I was a hockey player. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, despite that, I was being babysit in, in NFB editing suites. Um, I was uh, being taken to filmings of ballet and contemporary dance when they were doing gala. Um, so yeah, I was exposed to a lot of it and it, it was in the language, but dinner was family, politics, 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 <laughs> and, um, and then lots of culture, but not people, not necessarily people talking about film any more than any other family, especially nowadays where everybody seems to be talking what you're watching on Netflix. So, <laughs> well, you were a hockey player, an ice hockey player, uh, and you <laughs> even went to a scouting camp. Uh, how serious were you? Did you think that you might be a professional player at some point? Oh gosh, I don't, I, I was ambitious to a certain point. Um, I ended up, getting a scholarship to go play to school in the States called Chote Rosemary Hall, which was also an opportunity to maybe use it for academia. Mm. Um, and uh, it was from there um, that I came back to Canada to do the scouting tournament called the Great North Tournament, I think it was called. And in the final, in one of our final games, I had my shoulder dislocated for the 10th time. Um, it's second operation and I called it quits. It was yeah. just too much pain at that point. So I think I was, I, I became very aware that my injury that, you know, you, you better be in fighting shape when you get to the NHL, because you're going to be, you know, it's just going to be depletion year after year. But if you're as injured as I was going into the early stages of that hockey, I, it, it was never lost on me that I was a hurt athlete. 
What was it like growing up with an Oscar in the house? <laughs> and where was it? No, it was in a box in the basement for most of my life. Wow. And only in recent years, through enough familial pressure, we've been saying to my mom, can you please... Um, and we started sort of coercively getting my dad to put up his Oscar nomination, his Order of Canada, that kind of stuff. Uh, all the accolades from um, uh, from the Boys of St. Vincent as well as Dangerous Minds. And then my mom, I think, sort of ruffled her feathers a bit and said, oh, what the hell? And now it sits buried in a cupboard that's open. If you look, you can see it. If you remove a Santa Claus puppet, that's being placed over top of it. So it's not, yeah, it's it's hard work to get my parents to talk about any of their successes. I love that. Uh, you discovered avant-garde theater first. So after the hockey injury, uh, you were drawn to this. Now, it makes sense having heard the backstory, you're going to filmings of ballet and, and very steeped in the arts and that sort of thing. But what was it specifically about avant-garde theater that really drew you in? It was the physicality of it. Mm. To uh, often, it was very movement-based um, stories communicated and communicating stories. I think I love the abstraction that it was communicating stories, not just with text. You're listening to Dylan Smith on The Richard Krause Show. His new series, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, debuts on Amazon Prime on September 2nd. And I, yeah, my mom had gotten word um, from her dear friend who she used to produce, Adrian Clarkson. She produced a TV show with Adrian when they were much younger. Um, so Adrian inevitably has her finger on the pulse of every great artist in Canada or the rest of the world. And we were tipped off about Robert Lepage doing um, his production of Needles and Opium. And he happened to be doing it in Burlington. And as we were driving back from Connecticut where I was at school, she took me to see that production and it was such a physical production. He was on a harness uh, on a screen that would fold down and become a trampoline and the shadow puppetry, all the various forms of theater just felt very accessible. I kind of understood that storytelling mm -hmm. on a stage can, can have all forms of shape to it. And then as I started to study it, uh, I, uh, my first year at University of Toronto, when I was taking the acting program, I met this young Polish, who's now a filmmaker, a guy named Rafał Sokolowski. And um, he was studied in the Grotowski form of theater study, which is entirely physical. Um, we did a one man show with no words, playing two character, the observer and the observed. It's a complete physical rehearsal experience and that stuff yeah i just felt like i i had something to to actually say with my body more so than with words yeah it, it feels to me like it's the perfect melding of the, the family background in show business and and filmmaking and that sort of thing plus the physical demands that come with being a hockey player so you just bang those two together and there we are sitting here years later talking about your new TV show. For sure. I always say, I know, I, I think there's some other actors who do the same and it is often driven certain pockets of the arts industry. And that's when I say it, but I say it's always for me being very much like sports. You have an audience. 
if you, especially when you're doing theater, I'll never forget a championship game I was playing in Montreal. I was so in my head. I was captain of the team. My coach empowered me because they had an incredibly strong offense to play defense. I had such a self-awareness that I individually led in three goals. And I always equate that to stage that if you are anywhere but in your very first moment, in the first moment of walking on stage, then you're outside of the performance and the jokes don't land, the drama doesn't land, it just loses that sparkle. But if you you have to be completely in the moment, all the preparation that you did, in a sense, you have to leave out of the room and you have to begin at the beginning and sort of trust your instincts. And to me, it was a very similar playing field to, uh, you know, high level sports. Well, I, I mean, it, it's, it, it's a three part quick story, which is first table read, quote unquote, a working table read with the director. Show up, there's microphones on every table. There's high powered cameras. The showrunners stand up, give these ecstatically gorgeous speeches about this is the start of our our journey and they tie it in like the nerds they are to Lord of the Rings quests. And, and, and I realized in that moment, this isn't a table read, this is a performance. And, um, but I hadn't prepped anything. So I committed to nothing. And when I got home, I said to my wife, somebody's getting fired. And I think it's me. And then I got pulled into the director's office, JA, who basically was wonderful. He cut a long story short and was like, just be funny, just be funny. I was like, we're done. He's like, yeah, we're done. <laughs> and so went back the next day, got a laugh. And at that point, I kind of thought, oh, I mean, those, I, I dared to be bad in the first read through by not committing to something that I couldn't back up. And it failed. And then the next one, I tried something quite simple and bold and it worked. And I kind of thought, man, this is, this either happens or it doesn't. And then cut to our set. And in the introduction of my character, I was given a giant, I think it's called a Welsh, I don't know what kind, giant rabbit, giant rabbit to make me, this prehistoric Harfoot look small. And its name was Flopsy. And I was carrying it forever and forgot and sort of then at some point asked the show owner, sorry, why am I carrying a rabbit? And they're like, because it's dinner. Oh, I'm eating this rabbit. Okay, that's good. And then I had this thought of they were in waiting for another character to enter. You see me sort of sharpening a tool. And I said, it'd be pretty funny if that rabbit was just like right behind me being all innocent, just while I'm sort of blindly sharpening tools. And then to relax myself, with 5,000 people, I started singing little ditties in the lead up to rolling, where I'd be like, Flopsy, Flopsy, you're so sweet. I can't wait to eat your feet. Or Flopsy, Flopsy, you're so fine. I'll pick you clean right to the spine. Literally just to myself. And then suddenly the showrunners popped down. They're like, Dylan, the song. And I was like, no, no, it's my prep. You're not supposed to film that. That's just like, we love it. Just keep coming up with new ones. And then they popped away. And so it just sort of made me go, oh yeah, like you gotta be loose. Yeah. You've gotta be in your own creativity. And as you say on a show that's 5,000 people 
we were a world that were entirely ensconced in nature, no studio for us. Mm. Um, so we had the luxury of being in sets that were stunning. We were supposed to be in these carts that had the capacity to disappear like camouflage right. because the prehistoric Harfoots only mode of survival is to stay unknown right. um, because we're essentially refugees from one of the last great wars and we have no home and we've decided we have to always keep moving and always stay hidden. You're listening to Dylan Smith on The Richard Krause Show. His new series, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, debuts on Amazon Prime on September 2nd. So we had these carts that were completely camouflaged from the nature. And if you climb to the nearest hill, you literally could not see our cards. That's how, that's where all the money went, was all in the detail. And, um, but even then in that, in that pastoral setting, there's two 75 foot techno cranes, 5,000 crew. You do have to walk within an inch of your life, stay here, stay there, because huge set pieces. But even within that, if, if anything, I find that those, you know, those conformities force you to find something completely unexpected and loose and spontaneous within yourself you got to bring magic within we need you know we need you to be here and be there and be there because we got flying <laughs> coming in behind you, all that kind of stuff so um so yeah it was so i think <clears throat> for me getting to that point on this show was a matter of circumstance and then also, I think, faced with something that could just be a tidal wave of pressure, part of the pushback to claim my space was to go, eh, let's see what happens. If it falls on its face, well, then we can do another one, right? You, you do have that money, I hope. Well, your character is named Largo Brandyfoot. You talked a little bit about what a harfoot is. That's the, your species. Is it, that's your that's your your kind. But tell me what I need to know about Largo Brandyfoot. Uh, Largo is um, a loving, doting father who's filled with mischief. Um, he is the um, he's the father of Nori right. and Dilly, the husband of Marigold. Um, he's the wheelsmith in the community, which is a very important position considering they're traveling migrants. Um, and we are people that have been in this migratory pattern for hundreds of years. We have very strict rules of how our society must be led to protect ourselves. And um, of course, I've got a daughter who's coming of age of uh, sort of her own thinkings about how things should be done. Mm. And um, myself and my wife are sort of grappling with adoring and trusting our daughter, but also wanting to protect her and sometimes protect her from herself mm. and while also trying to trust her and empower her. Um, and I think my character uh, loves the mischief in my daughter and, and he, yeah, he just adores Nori um, beyond measure, admires her authenticity uh, and her bravery, and he's kind of an enabler for her to be as mischievous as she wants. One final question. You say that you are an actor in films that people love to kill. You've been killed 10 or 12 times. And I've always heard 
that if you're killed on film, you have to make sure that you land in a comfortable position because you're going to be laying there probably all day. The best thing I ever heard about getting killed was from a stuntman who was like, hey man, it's best death day. You ever play that game when you were a kid? Best death. That's all it is. And I found as soon as you go, oh yeah, it's best death. When I did that at home with my friends, I gave the best death. Um, yeah, whether I've been killed through hour than the neck, shotgun to the chest, blown out by the, by the actor who played Willow. Um, and uh, I just think have a lot of fun. But it's a great note, actually. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Once I had to die by falling down a shaft and snapping my neck, and I had to lie bent upside down for the rest of the afternoon, and it was not fun. That's our time, Dylan. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Yeah, yeah real pleasure. Lovely. I love, I've loved watching your shows, by the way. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, that's really yeah, cool. Thank you. thank you. That was Dylan Smith, one of the stars of Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, now streaming on Amazon Prime. It's getting great reviews, so check it out if you are a J.R.R. Tolkien fan. If you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. Looking for trouble? Just look right in my face. I was born standing up and talking back. My daddy was a green eyed That was a quick hit from Elvis, the new film about the king of rock and roll from Moulin Rouge director Baz Luhrmann. The film covers 20-ish years in the lives of Elvis and his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, through the birth of rock and roll in the late 1950s and the cheesy Hollywood years to the legendary 1968 comeback special and the Las Vegas rise and fall. It's the story of how Elvis and the Colonel shimmied and shook their way to the top of the charts and into the history books. I caught up with with director Baz Luhrmann and his stars. That's Austin Butler, who hands in a tremendous performance as Elvis. That was him. You just heard him singing. It's not an impersonation. It's something deeper, and there's already a lot of Oscar buzz around this performance. Joining them is Olivia de Young, who plays Priscilla Presley, Elvis's widow, in the film. I wish to promote you, Mr. Presley. Boardroom party in the town of jail. Are you ready to fly? Buttercup. In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. Baz, I'll start with you because you've been involved with this film the longest. You speak of using Elvis as a way of exploring America. What does the story of Elvis Presley tell us about the United States? Oh, I mean, there's so many layers. And certainly, you can't delve into um, look at America in the 50s, 60s, and 70s without looking at the issue of race and of social turmoil and of, like, just the push-me-pull-you. I mean, though the amount... There are, there are the assassinations and the historical events that happen throughout the movie that are reflected through where Elvis is um, are very real. And, you know, it's kind of a history play, but... Also, and above and beyond everything else, it's a cautionary tale about the show and the business. I mean, Colonel Tom Parker, never Colonel, never Tom, never Parker. This, you know, the big, big American gestures. Sell, sell, sell. Ho, 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 ho. Yeah, yeah, roll up, roll up. And the soul, you know, and the sensitivity of this artist who the good, the bad, and the ugly was there to reflect back to us through, through that entire period. And it's there, I think, to reflect to us today. 
Austin, I'm just going to follow up on Baz's answer. Do you really think that people understand the full width and breadth of Elvis's story? There are so many layers to it, and we all see him through a slightly different lens. I tend to think of him from the 68 comeback special, but there are so many facets to him. Do you think that it's possible to see the person that Elvis actually was? I think the vast majority don't. Yeah, I think I think most people don't, um, because at this point he's been relegated to either a Halloween costume or in this or a caricature that your uncle does, you know, or it's this thing where people will go to the home in Tupelo and kiss the floor where he was born, and so there's this this uh, being held up to such an iconic status that he he is larger than human. And uh, and so I, I think a lot of people don't know the sensitive side of him and and the spiritual side of him and as well as the fact of the thing where you have an icon that you kind of think that they just came out of nowhere. But putting his story into context, as as I know you know a lot more than the than the average layman, you know. But but putting his story into context of uh, like what Baz was saying, the the stories of him going into the gospel tent when he's such a young boy and and feeling the spirit of gospel music and uh, being down on Beale Street and being so inspired by the clothing and and by Little Richard and Sister Rosetta Tharp and uh, Big Mama Thornton and and I mean all of that is just. Um, is is a, a part of his story that I think there's many misconceptions about, and credit hasn't been given where credit is due a lot of the time, and uh, and so yeah, I'm really proud of the fact that I get to be a part of of this film with Baz and Olivia, and and uh, and and it, it's it's really remarkable what Baz has done with this. You're listening to Baz Luhrmann, Austin Butler, and Olivia De Jong on the Richard Krause Show. Their movie Elvis is in theaters everywhere right now. Olivia, we all know how important Priscilla was to Elvis in this particular section of his life. Tell me about her journey, though, from your perspective. There is a heart-wrenching scene where you break up with Elvis, essentially saying, this is it, I can't take this anymore. It's a gut-wrenching scene uh, played out from the point of a woman who's finally putting herself first, which probably wasn't the case a lot of times in those days. I think that with Priscilla... Her sensitivity is very important, and I think it would have been maybe easy to fall into the trope of just playing like a sensitive, quiet, small woman. But for me, I, I sort of was like, this sensitivity is a strength, and this femininity is a strength, and it is heartbreaking what happened um, and how you know they 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 broke up. But I think what was beautiful about this film. And what was really important for the for their narrative, I think, to reintroduce to to I guess the people, for lack of a better word, um, is is the fact that they remained incredibly close friends and incredibly close confidants after their divorce. And um, she continued to support his legacy. I think he was, she was one of, you know, she really knew how much that he meant to the people and how much that he meant to the world, you know. It's such a testament to their connection. And I think, you know, for the scenes that I did have, I wanted that, that, that backbone to be there. And I, I think she was an incredibly important part of his life. Okay, this question's for all of you. If you had to pick one Elvis song and one Elvis film as essential, I guess, primers about Elvis, what would they be? The film is Keep Your Old because just because actually you realize when he says at the end of the movie, I've never done anything significant, I'm almost 40. 
and his dream of being an actor, you can see that he really did have potential. Austin, how about you? I, I agree on King Creole. Um, I mean, there, there's there's a, a ton of these films out there, like Wild in the Country, or, or you know, that, where I just think he's actually extraordinary. But um, I think King Creole, because of the fact that that was a film that was being prepped for James Dean, that was Michael Curtiz directing. You know, th this is this is a moment where it showed so much promise for his career, um, and I think he's he's really great in it. Um, and as far as songs, it's so hard to choose. I mean, the first one that came to my mind is American Trilogy, mm -hmm. because it's it's just the you get to hear these th yeah. three different <clears throat> emotional places. It's three songs put together. It's essentially about mm -hmm. unity. We're we're mm -hmm. taking songs from across the line and bringing them together into one mm -hmm. piece of music, and and then also just the way that it has that little. What do you call that? An interlude in the middle where it sort of mm, comes absolutely. down, That's and right. then the crescendo at the end. Yeah, it's just every time it lifts my soul. Mm. Um, mm. So yeah, I'd probably say that right now. Olivia, what do you think? I'll keep it short. I'm chain melody. Oh. Yeah, I just yeah. you know, as someone who didn't know much about Elvis, I that that song just really touched me, and I think you know the final performance. Um, was, yeah, really touched me. So, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Thanks very much, and congratulations on the movie. Yeah. Hey, thank you. Thank, thank you. So you. That was Baz Luhrmann, Austin Butler, and Olivia de Young, the director and stars of Elvis, which is still playing in theaters and now available to stream. Thanks to all of them for stopping by. Elvis has left the building. Also, a big thanks to Dylan Smith. See him in The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, right now on Amazon Prime. And a big thanks to Valerie Bahajar. Her film, Carmen, is in theaters now and will come to VOD on September 30th. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon. <laughs>